Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. The episode notes for this incredibly entertaining and informative episode you are about to consume are available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Tane, we have been blessed here at the Good Judgment Podcast with some great episode topics, and those ideas came from our listeners. Absolutely. We really have. It's just been wonderful. I wish that they would also do all the research and maybe send along some completed episode notes for us to also. Yeah, that we, would really can help. Can we start doing that? Yeah, that would, I mean, that would help the time constraint issue on our front. <laughs> But now, seriously, we need to ask a little more from our listeners, at least a a select group of them, Tane. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Several of our listeners have suggested that we need to record an episode uh, or two dealing with the topic of habeas corpus petitions and hearings. And uh, Wade, you and I felt a little inadequate in that area. Is that fair to say? I never say I'm inadequate, just (laughs) ill-prepared. No. We know that many of our judicial circuits across Georgia hear a lot of these cases, and and primarily because they have prisons within their circuit, and potentially large prisons or multiple prisons within their circuit, and they have a great deal of experience with habeas corpus petitions. That's right. But here's the problem. Cobb County doesn't have a state prison, and I didn't hear, I think I literally heard one habeas case in 15 years. And I, while I was in the Augusta circuit, we had some that were generated at prisoners from ASMP, the Augusta State Medical Prison, but we didn't have very many. We don't have any in Columbia County. Yeah, so in summary, what we would like to have is someone who is an expert to join us for a recording session. We'll make it really easy on you, I promise, and help us all better understand habeas corpus petitions and how to deal with those. So if you want to do volunteer work and uh, you'd like to be on the podcast and you think you'd enjoy that, contact us at at, uh, goodjudgepod at gmail.com and let us know or give Wade a call or get me a call. So, okay, so that's enough with the public service announcement begging for help. Um, (laughs) So let's tell folks what we're going to talk about in today's episode, Tane. Absolutely. So today we're going to address a case that uh, lawyers and judges uh, who hear traffic cases might find interesting and important, something new that's come up. It's been a while since we recorded an episode primarily for our friends in traffic courts and who hear cases involving UTCs or Uniform Traffic Citations. Uh, yeah, I remember those days pretty fondly tame. We we <laughs> spoke with probate judges, FOP Ben Stuttered, Super FOP Ben Stuttered. It seems like only yesterday, Tane. So the case <laughs> that we're going to primarily focus on today, Tane, it's Smith versus State, 366, Georgia Appeals, 399. That's a 2023 case. And this came up, um, it really deals with a larger topic of UTCs, as you said, uniform traffic citations, mm-hmm. accusations, and demurs. As a sideline, and I know that's shocking, we're going to take a little off the beaten path here, Tane. Do you know that when I was in the Augusta Circuit, there was once a occasion where a local agency wrote a UTC for murder? I guess they ignored that, that, that traffic part of the UT. Uniform UMC. It was yeah. a uniform, uniform murder. murder anyway. Well, it's so much easier when you can just fill in the blanks. Yeah, I mean, it is. It is. <laughs> and that's funny you say that because this case that deals with filling in the blanks, that's really funny. And you didn't even know that because I know you haven't read this. Come on, man. Why do you have to out me to everybody in my lack of preparedness? 
So I don't think the facts of this case are going to be all that important. They're not that complex. Let's just, but let's get them on the record anyway. Tane, tell the folks about this defendant. Yeah, so he was charged with improper or erratic lane change, which of course is ACGA section 40-6-123A. Every time a statue decided, an angel gets his wings. I always try to pause for the angel to get its wings. Um, he was charged on a UTC, a Uniform Traffic Citation. Um, at the close of the evidence, the defendant made an oral motion to quash the charge. That's a great word, isn't it? Quash? I love quash. Yeah. Quash. How many I've people, heard people say squash. I was going to ask you how many people oh, said so many times. And Your I'm Honor, like, I make a motion just, to squash it? Just, just the corners of my mouth would just creep up just a little bit. But anyway. So uh, let's, let's talk about a what a motion to quash is, Tane. Let's yeah, tell exactly. Them. Go ahead. Well, Really, a motion to quash is another way to reference a general demur. And notice it was made orally in this case, in the Smith case, and after the close of evidence. So that's going to, it wasn't a motion, quote, filed at a owner before arraignment or within 10 days thereof. So we're, we're going to talk a little bit about demurs. But Tane, you may recall we have whole episodes on demurs in our vast library out there. I think we're at about like 130. Yeah. 130, 130 episodes. Who thought we would stay on the internets this long? So, so yeah, in Smith, the motion to quash was made and the trial court denied the motion, but then certified the order for immediate review. Essentially, the defendant claimed that the UTC that was issued failed to allege the essential elements of the offense and because it was fatally deficient, it should have been quashed. Some of you are likely noticing the timing issue relating to when this motion was, was made, and, and it's pretty important. It was a bench trial, so Jeopardy had attached at the time the first witness was sworn and began testifying. So under d double Jeopardy concerns, Tane, if the motion to quash was granted after the evidence was closed, that, and that's when it was raised, the defendant cannot be retried on this offense. Right. So this ruling is likely potentially dispositive and not really on the merits of the case. No. So I know that we detour off topic sometimes in this podcast, already have in this podcast, and it is a direct reflection of how we think, Wade and Tane. Very similar <laughs> yes, to a pinball machine. Um, squirrel. so accurate. Squirrel. So let's go on a quick aside, Tane, and the facts of the Smith case are not too complex. Let's talk about um, when motions generally have to be filed and, and, and how this is a little different. Sure. So Georgia law and the uniform rules of each class of court that hears these sorts of cases all require motions, quote, including demurs, to be filed within 10 days of arraignment. The trial court can allow for additional time but almost everyone understands that motions need to be filed within 10 days of arraignment. So as we have discussed in those separate episodes dealing with motions and demurs specifically, demurs are treated a little differently, even though it says including demurs in the statute and in all the uniform rules, they're treated a little differently, at least by the appellate courts. So some of you may be asking, what is a demur? It's a cool word and all, but what does it mean? Well, yeah, and you know what? We're glad you asked that. A demur can be can also be referenced as a motion to quash, as it was in this case. Um, it is a a complaint or attack on the formal charging instrument that was brought against the defendant. There are things like 
special demur, demurs and general demurs, and they have sort of different different purposes. You love the the origins of words. Is this French? Uh, yes, I believe it is. I believe it means um, to be shy and demur. Are you making that up? You're 100% making that up, aren't you? <laughs> All right. So a special demur seeks to have the prosecutor perfect the formal charging instrument, the UTC, the accusation, the indictment, whatever you're dealing with. It alleges that the charging instrument lacks sufficient specificity. For example, where the defendant is charged with violating a family violence order, the defendant is entitled to be told within the accusation or indictment exactly what family violence order the prosecuting prosecutor is alleging that he or she violated or where the defendant is charged with cruelty to animals for neglecting animals. The defendant is entitled to be informed within the accusation or indictment what actions are being alleged as neglectful. They don't have to name all the animals, but they have to <laughs> allege what acts were <laughs> neglectful. Fluffy and Sparky and Rover. Grover. Grover and Rover. And Rover. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. Those are special demurs, Tane. Yeah, and and they're almost like a, a a motion for more definite statement. It's it's almost like, hey, I, I need more required information, and that's why it's special. <laughs> the law is clear that a special demur must be filed within ten days of arraignment. By comparison, though, Tane, a general demur can be filed at any time during the case. Tell the people what a general demur is. Sure. A general demur is a motion that essentially alleges that the defendant could admit everything alleged in the charging instrument and still would not be guilty of a crime. In other words, there's such a defect in the charging instrument that it's not really alleging something that's criminal. The charging instrument does not allege a crime and the defendant could admit every fact as alleged in the charging instrument and the state still would not have proven that the defendant committed a crime. So if a special or a general demur is granted, the court quashes the indictment. That's what that's the, the, you would have an order of order to quash, not squash, quash, not squash, not squash. Another fun not legal word, it. quash. Yes. Um, Hence the occasional reference to a motion to quash as a substitute for a demur. Just like it was in this Smith case. So let's get back to the Smith case, Tane, because I'm sure that people find us hilarious, but they're probably tired of our uh, <laughs> off topic banter. Sure. So. In Smith, the Georgia Court of Appeals described Georgia's form UTC and noted the citation in this case contains a section titled, quote, offense other than above, end quote, and asks the officer to specify the name of the offense and the violated code section along with a section for any, quote, remarks. 
Below these sections, a table sets forth a number of options to check under the headings weather, road, traffic, lighting, and commercial vehicle information and allows the officer to fill in where the offense occurred. Within the, quote, offense section, the officer typed in, quote, improper slash erratic lane change, end quote, and specified that Smith was in violation of Code Section 40-6-123, Subsection A. In, quote, Clayton, end quote, County, on, quote, Riverdale Road, end quote, at, quote, at slash on secondary location, East 1285 ramp. That would be quote. I. I'm sorry. I think it's I-285. Sorry. My bad. Well, I read that wrong. There's no dash in there, Wade. Well, yeah. I, it was, so anyway, a, it was that's, a cut, that's and paste, what the, uh, cut and paste from the Court of Appeals. That's the way they wrote it. It's the way I write yeah. it. That's what, well, and I'm sure that's the way it was on the citation. So, uh, so, so then anyway, the, then the those were appeals. the allegations that were on the face of the citation right. itself. And if you've ever looked at one of these uniform forms, I mean, it it does. It has a lot of boxes for checking, and then it just has some blanks for the officers to get familiar and fill in the things they need to fill in. The Court of Appeals then looked at the language of the statute, having having pretty exhaustively described the UTC, and they quoted 40-6-123. Which, which says, we shall now quote subsection as well. A, yeah, so it's subsection A, which says no person shall turn a vehicle at an intersection unless the vehicle is in proper position upon the roadway as required in a different code section, or turn a vehicle to enter a private road or driveway, or otherwise turn a vehicle from a direct course or change lanes, or move right or left upon a roadway, unless and until such movement can be made with reasonable safety. No person shall turn any vehicle without giving an appropriate and timely signal in a manner provided for in this code section. You're going to notice that that a phrase in that statute that's an element of the crime that was not described by Tain, but which I read as the definition of the statute. What's that phrase, Tain? Unless and until such movement can be made with reasonable safety. So the UTC did not allege that the lane change committed by this defendant was not done safely or exactly how the lane change was unsafe. The officer did use the word erratic tain, but as you know, because you like words and origins and stuff, the Court of Appeals noted that the word erratic is not synonymous with the word unsafe. That's you right. can be erratic, can be and, erratic safe. and still be. I can, yeah, exactly. I personally am erratic and yet safe. Well, there you go. <laughs> Yeah, the court noted that alleging that a lane change was, quote, improper is a legal conclusion and is not a factual allegation. And then the Court of Appeals noted one more thing. And I'm going to read the from the decision. And if you want this language, you can find it on our episode outline. Tane, tell the people where to find it. At goodjudgepod.com. Second, the Court of Appeals said, while the phrase erratic lane change, in quotes, in the citation alleges some facts, it does not allege the facts necessary to establish a violation of OCGA section 40-6-123 because it does not contain an essential element of the offense that Smith changed lanes without first ascertaining that such movement could be made with, quote, reasonable safety. Yeah, the Court of Appeals noted that the officer did not write anything in the section of the UTC labeled, quote, remarks. 
had the officer described what it was that the defendant had done that caused the officer to allege the defendant had made an erratic or unsafe lane change, it may have changed their analysis. And I frankly think it would have. Absolutely. One other interesting finding in the Smith case that after noting that, quote, erratic does not equate with, quote, unsafe, the Court of Appeals noted the fact that the defendant testified at the hearing and did not rebut the officer's testimony. But they said that is irrelevant to a determination of whether the UTC was fatally flawed, Tane. Yeah, and I mean, that's the same as with a demur. The, the court said a demur must not be based upon extrinsic facts, such as the testimony at trial or at a hearing. Instead, it is focused solely on the body of the charging instrument. And then the Court of Appeals discussed a, a relatively recent similar decision, and then they concluded, quote, in this case, that Smith made an erratic lane change does not necessarily mean that such maneuver was not reasonably safe within the meaning of the statute. In conclusion, we find that the citation at issue is substantially defective because it simply alleges that Smith violated a certain statute, which is insufficient to survive a motion to quash. And Tane, there was a there was a body of law for a while that said if you identify the statute in the code section, you incorporate it by reference, and, and you didn't have to allege it. And that's simply not the law anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, it's not sufficient to just cite the statute. You've got to give more specificity. So when dealing with a motion to quash or a general demur, we got to understand that while a charging instrument need not be truly perfect, it must be at least sufficient. That's the term that the court uses. It, it must include the allegations that set out the crime allegedly committed and must include all of the essential elements of that crime. So, Tane, you may be asking yourself, self, how could we have avoided this problem? This is not going to be a unique circumstance. How, how could we have avoided this problem? Yeah. Tain, we so have for talked, all of our prosecutor friends yeah. who are listening out there. Or our, probate our judges who hear traffic or yeah. other people. Or defense attorneys. Having a prosecutor that, that that knows what's happening in one of these courts is important, isn't it, Tain? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, here, I mean, we're also really talking to the officers because in, in this case, the accusation, essentially, the UTC is is drafted in the field by the officer when they're writing these things up. And so, you know, that's a lot um, to ask, you know? Yeah, it, it really is. Um, but uh, remember that the prosecutor may always prefer an accusation over simply moving forward on the UTC, as was done in this case. While Georgia law allows prosecutors to proceed with the UTC being the charging instrument, it is probably unrealistic to expect an officer out in the field, as we just said, to know all the nuances of the relevant statute and to include all of that information on the face of the UTC. So for that reason, again, we, we would encourage prosecutors who are listening out there to you know, look at these traffic citations and make sure that they include the elements of the crime uh, so that, you know, when you get to the prosecution, you don't have to deal with a demur or a motion to quash. You know, I think being in Georgia, we get to say certain words that are almost indecipherable to other learned legal professionals, things like vordar, demur. I mean, we, we just make a mess out of pronunciation. You know what? Yeah, absolutely. We don't uh, we don't get to say, um, oh, man, what did we do away with? It was always the Georgia thing. Uh, Raise just Race Jesti, yeah. yeah. We don't get to do Race Jesti anymore, and gosh, we used to use that one all the time. That was kind of the answer to anything you didn't know the answer to. It was like at church, you'd just say Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> race Jesti. 
I mean, just think about all those lawyers. They thought they weren't all that smart. They were saying Latin all over the place. I know, man. We got Latin all over the place. Race up so lock with her, baby. All right. So that's all for this episode on Smith versus the state. (laughs) Remember, folks, uh, we have additional episodes dealing with demurs, and you can find those on the outlines on our website at goodjudgepod.com. Remember that a special demur or motion to quash must be filed within 10 days of arraignment. But a general demur can be filed at any time before the judgment is pronounced, and it need not be made in a written motion. So reach out to us with some more good ideas for topic episode topics. And if you would like to have a, a starring role on our habeas corpus series, reach out to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. All right. I know this is what everybody waits for. This is the only reason people listen to these things anymore. This I would love to hear. Time. Hang on. Hold up. I, I would love yeah. to hear if anybody listens to this. If you would, if you listen to this <laughs> section on the music trivia, just send me email an email. Us. Yeah. Email us at, at uh, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. All right, music trivia time. You're likely aware of the band known as Red Hot Chili Peppers. Give it away, give it away, give it away now. Anyway, um, they have an iconic sound and have really produced some really great music. They have a bassist who's probably as well known as any other member of the band. He's the guy named Flea. His performance style is pretty unique and is politely referred to as high energy. High being, no, never mind. Um, High energy. Some might even call it frenetic. I, I would certainly call it frenetic. Anyway, little known fact about Flea. He is a marathoner. He ran both the 2011 and 2012 Los Angeles marathons to raise fund for the Silver Lake Conservatory of Music. His average time for running those marathons weighed, it would be like 20 hours for me, but his average time, three hours and 41 minutes. That is pretty impressive stuff. Or the man known as Flea, Michael Peter Balzari. Uh, So, folks, you know, the more you know, the better you are. Have a great day. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We try our best to give you actionable information, but in a format that does not make you want to hurt yourself. Two thoughts. Some topics allow us the latitude to be a little bit more fun. Number two, if we've failed you, we will try to do our best to do better in the next episode. We know that you have lots of choices, and we're honored that you chose us this time. We're kind of amazed, to be totally honest. This podcast began as a project that was initially the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the former director and executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law my new part-time employer. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But hey, nobody can get it all. Thanks to our unsung hero, Kevin Holder. You are instrumental in our podcast being published and made available to the public. We should have been singing your praises all along, but we didn't, so... Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges all across Georgia. Wade and I are also grateful to the State Justice Institute who allow us to do this through their generosity. You know that these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, SJI, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. Contact someone else with your complaints. 
But seriously, we would love your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Please visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for all our episode outlines and more details about our podcasts. Some of you send emails asking for copies of the outlines. Seriously, people, they're available 24-7, 365 at the website, goodjudgepod.com. And we say that like 20 times during every broadcast. But seriously, you can upload or download or otherwise use them as you wish and on your schedule and at your convenience. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening.